Thank you so much, Kelly. All right, take your Bible, turn to the book of Leviticus. Does you, do you need an outline tonight? You can raise your hand. Some of our men in the back have outlines. And if you need one, raise it nice and high so we can see that. Leviticus chapter 16. You know, the book of Leviticus is one of those books that uh, some people describe when you read through the Bible, it's like walking through molasses. You, you feel like you get bogged down and you get confused because a lot of Leviticus is not the kind of thing that you think about all day. Uh, books like Ephesians uh, often pop into my mind as I'm walking through my daily life. I think about I think about verses about temptation, verses about speech, verses about how to love my wife, verses about not provoking my son to wrath, things like that pop into my mind. But I don't know the last time it popped into my mind about how to cut an animal and splatter the blood upon the altar. So Leviticus is one of those books that uh, can be confusing, especially to a new believer or someone who's not uh, reading the Bible a lot or you're new to the faith or you're, you're, you're not very familiar with the Old Testament, Leviticus can be challenging. But if you can just grab onto this idea, I think it will help you understand what's going on in the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is about the holiness of God. It's about how, how, how great and holy God is and what it takes for us, unholy people, to have fellowship with a holy God. And of course, this is prior to Christ's coming, and that plays very much an important role in our, our sermon tonight. But the, the, the specific question being answered here is, is, what does it take? How can a holy God live among an unholy people? Because what's going on in the story of Leviticus is, as the Pentateuch tells us, or as the story of the Bible tells us, the people have left Egypt and they are going to the promised land. And while they are on their way to the promised land, there they camp. And there is the tabernacle in the camp of the people. The presence of God is among the people, but the people are unholy, and we have a holy God. So how can these two things work together? How can this be? The word holy in all of its forms occurs about 95 times in the book of Leviticus. That's a very, very high number. And what we see in this, uh, the title of the message is Approaching Our Holy God. We have, we have Jew, Jewish feasts celebrations. A lot of times they scare us away as we read them. They're, they're difficult to understand, difficult to identify, and we're not, supposed to, not sure what we're supposed to do with these things. But as we look at this passage today, I want to split this in two parts. The first part is the discussion about the Leviticus 16 passage, the Day of Atonement. And the second part, we're going to talk about its implications, its significance, and how we understand this in a New Testament world. Let's bow for prayer and ask God to bless, okay? Lord, thank you for how you have given us all of your word. And passages like this in the Old Testament teach us so much about who you are and the requirements for holy, holiness. And not only that, it shows us the seriousness of our sin and what must happen for sin to be covered. We're thankful that you have paid the price once and for all. Thank you, Lord, for this time we have together tonight. May it be sweet. May we learn about you and learn to love you more through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it's been argued that Leviticus 16, this chapter, by the way, we're doing the Through the Bible series, meaning that if you're keeping up with your Bible reading at this week, you would have come across Leviticus 16. So that's what we're trying to do on Sunday nights as we cover a passage 
as you have been reading through your Bible. And so, if you've been argued that this chapter, Leviticus 16, sits at the center of the Pentateuch, or if you go Genesis to Deuteronomy, Leviticus 16 kind of sits as a, what's called a chiasm, which is the middle part of, of, of a structure. And, and whether or not that's exactly true, it's undeniable that Leviticus 16 is a very important passage for the, all, for the whole book and also for the entire Bible. It gives us a picture of what's called the Day of Atonement. So let's look at this day. First thing we're going to look at is Leviticus 16, the day as I'm calling it here. What does the Bible tell us about the day? Now we have several things going on, and it's a little bit confusing if you just read it straight through. So we're going to start and break this thing down little by little. First, I want to show you the preparations for the event, and this leads us to the first few verses here. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. In Leviticus 16, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. I want you to notice a few things as we look at this. Number one, there are limitations for the high priest. There are limits that are placed immediately upon the high priest at the beginning of this chapter. Notice that he says there is a limp, that he gives the context here that the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. And if you've been reading, you probably remember just a few chapters early, Leviticus 10 tells us the story of Nadab and Abihu. Now, Nadab and Abihu, um, I think I have right here, uh, they are the sons of Aaron. The Bible tells us that each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. What happens here is that Nadab and Abihu become creative in their worship. The basic idea is that in in their worship of God, God had prescribed how they were to worship Nadab and Abihu, come before the Lord, and as they come before him, they bring profane. Now, profane just means strange fire. This is fire, not authorized fire. This is fire, some sort of incense, and we don't exactly know what it was. It doesn't go into detail. In fact, the Bible is clear not to go into detail lest you try to recreate this kind of thing or get enamored with what happened. The point is that it was not authorized by God. It was their own imagination, their own ideas that led them to do this. And God says, you can't do that. You, you can't be offering profane fire or strange fire before the Lord. And so as they bring fire to the Lord, God deals harshly with them. Look at the next phrase. Verse 2 says, so fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Again, this is back in Leviticus 10, just a few chapters earlier. So these two men died because of their, because of their desire to worship God in a new way, in a maybe a more interesting way. Maybe they liked the way it looked or smelled or whatever, and they did it. They brought it before God, and God dealt with them. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as what? Holy and before all this people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. God says, you don't just come to me how you want to come to me. You don't just come before God Almighty any old way. If you do that, you will be dealt with harshly. In fact, the demonstration here is wrath on improper worship. So the problem is presented here. As we go back to the limitation of the high priest, (coughs) excuse me, Moses said, or the Lord said to Moses, um, Verse 2, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come just at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark. 
the presence of God, he said, would be there in a cloud above the mercy seat. Now, I, I went and I found there's this um, really neat, um, uh, dem- I've never actually been there, but in a place called Timnah, there is a recreation of the tabernacle, life-size. And so these are some photographs from that life-size recreation. This is out in the wilderness. This is in, the, in Timnah in the Middle East. And so some people put together, and following the dimensions that were given to us in the Bible, they put together a life-size um, a tabernacle. And so this is what it would have looked like. You see, uh, the, the, you see the tabernacle there, the, the, the cloth covering it, and the front gates there. And as you come before it here, you notice that this would be the altar of incense, and this is a, a life-size kind of a mannequin there wearing uh, robes uh, that would have been glorious robes that Aaron and the priests would have worn. And then before and past that veil, which is you see there uh, with the stripe on it and the angels there, past the veil, past the incense, is the Holy of Holies. There is the holy place. If you go back out here, this is the courtyard here. Once you go into that tabernacle, you enter the holy place, and the holy place has several place, several things going on there. We're not going to get into details, but once you go past the holy place into the holy of holies, or as some translations say, the most holy place, there is the Ark of the Covenant. Here's just, again, a, a, a picture of what one may have looked like. Two cherubim facing each other, their wings uh, touching like this, and, and that place right between the cherubim is what's called the mercy seat, and that is where, where the uh, presence of God would be. So this is all very, very important. It's very serious. It's not something to play around with. And, there are, and he says, you cannot go in there anytime you want. You're not allowed to go in there. The high priest, the guy you would think he could do whatever he wants. He's the high priest. He's in charge. No, no, no. He says, you cannot. There are limitations on the high priest. Well, secondly, we'll see some preparations for the high priest in verses 3 through 5. He says, so, so when you shall come into the holy place, okay, if you're going to come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering, he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body, he shall be girded with a linen sash, and with a linen turban he shall be attired. And these are the holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put it on. He shall take from the congregation by the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering. So as he comes into the holy place, notice verse 3, he shall come with blood. There's going to be blood because blood is a payment for sin. But notice verse 4, there is a preparation of the clothes. This is really interesting to me because what he does is he takes off his glorious clothes. Remember the picture I just showed you, this one here? That I don't know if you can see it on, on this very well, but, but there's a very ornate and the blues and, the, and, the, and the, um, the stones and all the gems and things would have been sparkling and beautiful for the people. In fact, uh, when Moses, uh, when these things are built, when these things are made, the description is this, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So he is supposed to make beautiful clothes, but look here at this, at this passage. He says, when he goes into the holy place, verse 4, he shall put on a holy linen tunic and linen trousers, girded with a linen sash and a linen turban. He is to be de-emphasized. Linen is just like plain white. All the beauty all the glory is to be put aside. And so he looked much more like the little man on the left than the man on the right. All of, all of the, the magni- magnificence of the, of the glory of his uh, clothes would be changed. He would be very simple. And the point here is that it's not about you. It's not about your glory. 
If we keep going, you notice that he has to wash himself. He has to clean himself in water. His nature of being human means that he is impure. He is unclean. He, is, he needs to be clean. He takes two kids of the goats, verse 5, and he takes them and the ram as a burnt offering. Now, finally, we come to the direction... Um, we come to the, direct, the, uh, the uh, directions for the event. Oh, I had one more verse here that I wanted to point out that it's very important we recognize that approaching God is not something you do casually. The Bible tells us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we have the limitations for the high priest, the preparations for the high priest, and finally the directions for the event in verse 6. Now the stage is set. We actually talk about the event. Look at verse 6. Aaron shall offer a bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them both before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, one lot for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering, but the goat on which the lot fell, the scapegoat, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness." First, the big picture, he says, this is what's going to happen today. You're going to offer an animal as a blood sacrifice, and you're also take a blood sac- or going to take an animal and not offer it as a blood sacrifice, but let it go freely as a scapegoat. These are important things to think about, but he uses the word over and over again. In fact, in this passage, it occurs many, many times, 16 times, is the word atonement. Did you see that word, atonement? I want to talk about this word before we dive in, because the Hebrew word kafar or kippur means atonement. In fact, you've heard of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. That's what we're talking about today. Yom is day, Kippur is atonement. The word is kafar, to cover. We talk about atoning, we're talking about covering. It can mean several things. It can mean to forgive, as in to cover a sin, to forgive a sin. Kafar can also have to do with cleansing. In fact, in Leviticus 16.30, you see it explicitly. He says, I will make atonement to cleanse you. You also have this idea of ransom coming up with, the, uh, with, uh, with atonement. Ransom is connected somehow. It's, it's, it's sometimes connected with a financial payment, as in Exodus chapter 30, or sometimes as a life of an animal, as a ransom. But it also, and this is very important, it refers to the idea of averting God's wrath. God's righteous wrath against sin, atonement or covering averts that. And so I, I was doing some reading this week, and I found this tremendous article by a pastor actually in Greenville, Mark Minnick, and he wrote this. He said, atonement can be best described or defined as this, buying back by the payment of a covering substitute. Okay, there's a lot going on there, but this is the work of buying back by the payment of a substitute that covers, a covering substitute. We're going to see that in graphic detail in this next section. So let's look at the detail here. The detail explanation, first he comes into the holy place and makes atonement for himself. This is very key. Look at verse 11. Aaron shall bring the bull. So he's, I'm sorry, so let's back up. So he, first he gave the big picture, now he's getting into the details. He's saying, this is now, let's walk back line by line and moment by moment and see what happens. Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as a sin offering which is for himself. Then he shall take the censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with the finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger 
seven times. Notice that Aaron is to kill the bull as a sin offering that is for himself and for his house. He is impure as a priest, and he must be made pure. He must be covered. His sins must be dealt with before he can deal with the sins of others. So the priest comes and makes a sacrifice. Notice also he's to offer incense, verses 12 and 13. Notice the repetition of what we, call, we covered earlier. If he fails to do this, what will happen to Aaron? He will what? He will die. This is not something to play around with. He's already seen this happen with Nadab and Abihu. Their improper offerings led them to their death, and so he is very careful here. Look at verse 14. He sprinkles the, blood's bull, the bull's blood on the mercy seat in the most holy place, that is the holy of holies, so he makes atonement for himself and for his house. As he comes into the holy place, he makes atonement. Secondly, we see the first goat is to make atonement for the people. In verse 15, he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Okay, that's key. Bring its blood inside the veil and do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull. Sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. So shall he do to the tabernacle of the meeting which remains among them in the midst of of their uncleanness. Notice the role of this first goat. The people have sinned and has made the holy place unclean, made the tabernacle unclean. So the tabernacle itself must be atoned for. It must be purified. And so he makes atonement for the holy place by killing the animal on behalf of the people and bringing it in and sprinkling the blood there and purifying it. Verse 17, there shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes into the make atonement in the holy place until he comes out. He is to go alone that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. He makes atonement for himself, for his household, and also for the people. All the atonement being made here. This work is done by a solitary figure, one man bringing the offering. Verse 18, he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar and all around it. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Just notice that our sin defiles everything. <clears throat> our sin, it makes an impact and leaves a trail. And here it's very clear that he says the sin had defiled everything needed to be clean. Notice next, the next part of this service, the next part of this process is the loosing of the scapegoat. Look in verse 20. He said, When he had made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. So there has been a bull that has been sacrificed and a goat that has been sacrificed. Of the two goats that were taken, one was sacrificed and one was not sacrificed. Verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, Confess over in all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. Notice the live goat that comes out, and he lays his hands upon it. Now, what is he signifying here? It's pretty obvious to me that what he's doing is he's transferring the guilt of all the people and the sins upon this goat. It's very symbolic. 
very symbolic and very important, that the high priest is not going to allow the sin to remain in the camp. Then in a very symbolic way, they place all their sins upon this live goat, and they take the goat as far away from the camp as possible. The sin is taken out. The sin is removed. The sin which belongs to that goat or is on that goat is taken out, and the, and the, and the person leads it out. You know, because a goat, who knows, if you were to just let it out, it might come right back in. No, no, no. You have to make sure it goes all the way out into an uninhabited wilderness land. So that's what they do. The animal must go far away, so the sins of the people carried by this animal are symbolically removed from the camp, and the man leads the animal to ensure it doesn't wander back. The wilderness is a wild place, a desolate land. That's where sin belongs. It doesn't belong near God in the camp next to a holy God. And once the man arrives in the desert, he'll release the goat, so it goes on its own, and the image is clear that the sin is taken out. And then notice what happens next in verse 23. We have a change of clothing. This is really key here. Notice Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting. What has he been wearing so far, remember? He's wearing the linen garments, the plain clothes. What happens next? He shall take off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place. He shall leave them there. He shall wash his body with water in the holy place, put on his garments, and come out and offer a burnt offering, and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn in the altar, verse 26, and he who released the goat as a scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterwards he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement for the holy place shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn it in the fire with their skins, their flesh, and their offal. He who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. Notice... The change of clothing signifies the completion of the sacrifice. He's done with sacrificing now. He gets to come out on behalf of the whole people. He brings with him the, the, uh, the, he brings with him the fat of the offering, verse 25. And the man who had brought the scapegoat out into the wilderness now returns. And he has to wash himself as well before he comes back into the camp. Again, defiled by the sin as he led the goat out, he now has to wash himself to symbolize purity, comes back in. And he, is, he re-enters the camp, and everything that's been offered, the blood of the animals that have been sacrificed to make atonement, it's carried outside the camp. Everything must go outside the camp. It goes out of the people, and it must be burned up. And so those who burn them will wash their clothes and bathe so they return to camp. Notice all of this going on, all of this, this, this symbolism that's happening here of sin being placed on these animals and sacrifice. This is the day of sin being atoned. I think at this moment, if you're reading this or if you're participating in this, you come to the end of, uh, of verse 28, I would be very, very relieved. No one's died. Everything happened like it was supposed to happen. And then all the relief of this, it says in verse 29, this shall be a statute forever for you. Then on the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls do no work at all, whether a native or your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day, a priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. You shall afflict your souls. It's a statute forever. This is an established ordinance. The point he's making here in this established ordinance is that this becomes something that happens often every year. 
They must fast. The word afflict means to fast. This is not a time of joy. It's a time of sorrow. Now, what's coming is the Feast of Booths, which is a time of joy and feasting. We're not there yet. We're first in the time of sorrow. And you already start to see some of the parallels of Jesus. There's sorrow and then joy, crucifixion and resurrection. You see here the atoning work, the sorrow that's associated with that. Let's read the rest of this, and then I'll get to the significance. Look at verse 32. He says, the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest of his father's place shall make atonement, put on the linen clothes, the holy garments, Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded. Notice the establishment of this. This is to be done for the nation of Israel over and over and over again. There was never an end until it would be fulfilled. As we look at this as New Testament Christians, this can seem very foreign to us. I have never sacrificed a goat before in my life. I have never participated in a day of atonement. So what are we to take from these things? I want to turn your attention to the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Hebrews. Just a few verses here. I have a lot of it on the screen, but I would like for you to see this in your own Bible. Book of Hebrews. I want to show you first this passage from chapter 9, and I'm going to come back to this verse, but I want to start here because I want to show you what, why we're reading it this way, why we're looking at this. In Hebrews 9, 6 through 8, the Bible tells us this, now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. We just read about that. We spent 30 minutes or so, 20 minutes, looking at that exact thing. Now look at verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. The Holy Spirit worked in the symbolism to indicate and to tell us something. And what he's telling us is that in the first, the first tabernacle, it was not perfect. It was not complete. While the tabernacle was still standing, he says, the way into the holiest was not yet made manifest. Only one person could go once a year, and he had a lot to do before he ever went in there. There was a lot standing between us and the holy place. Now, I want you to notice what I've, I I kind of, as I thought about this, I thought there are two, from my perspective, and there might be more, but there are two main things I believe that the Holy Spirit is teaching us in this passage. The first is this, the need for a perfect priest. The need for a perfect priest. The Jewish high priest had a severe limitation. He himself was a sinner. And before he could offer any sacrifice for anyone, before he could go to God for the people, He must first atone for his own sin. That's a very severe limitation. So much so, there's all this about washing and cleansing and purifying and atoning. If you go back to this chapter, he says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing their services, but into the second part, that's the Holy of Holies, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself. 
He offered a yes for the people, but also for himself. I want you to notice in Hebrews chapter 7, can you turn there, Hebrews 7, verse 26. He describes Jesus, who is our great high priest. Notice this here, he says, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Oh, that's so different from the high priest the Jews had. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. Jesus does not have the same problem that the priests had because he is perfect and sinless. So the Son of God perfectly offers not only, notice what it says, first, he, he did not have to offer first for his own sin and for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus did not need to offer a lamb. He could offer himself. Because he is, as John the Baptist identified, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not just the sins of the nation, not just the sins for a time, not just the covering of sins, but the removal, the complete forgiveness of the sins. Verse 28, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son, the son who has been perfected forever. We have a need for a perfect priest, and Jesus fulfills that need perfectly. What a wonderful gift that is. You think about the blood that was spilled, the blood that was shed, Jesus willingly offered Himself. The second thing I believe the Spirit is teaching us through this is the need for a final sacrifice. Not just a perfect priest, but a final sacrifice. The second aspect of this statute was that it was a repeated statute. It was a repeated law or ordinance. The sacrifice had to continue because it was not sufficient. You offered the sacrifice, you purified, it was like hitting a reset button. Everything was reset. Now it's pure. But guess what happens? People keep sinning, and the place gets defiled again, and people need atonement again. They need covering again. But notice the difference between what happened with the animals and what happens with Jesus here. Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of these things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Stop for a moment. He's saying, when we see the picture of what happened, the picture of the tabernacle, the priest entering into the holy place, Christ was not a priest who entered into the holy place. He didn't need to. He did something far greater. In fact, the priest entering into the the holy of holies was a picture of what would come later when Jesus, notice here, Christ entered not into the holy place made with hands, but into the true. The picture that we have in the tabernacle is a copy. It's a type. It's a picture of what is true. Notice what he says, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. There on the mercy seat, the presence of God was in a cloud, but Jesus goes into heaven itself. Look at verse 25. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. 
Jesus doesn't have to do this over and over and over again. Look at verse 26. But then he would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins for many. Do you see the beauty? That, the, that the, the animals had to be offered time again, time and again. But Jesus offered himself once for all so we can be forgiven our sins once for all. Jesus did not need to be repeatedly offered over and over again because his sacrifice, his offer was sufficient. Praise God. We have a sufficient Savior. We have a sufficient offering. Hebrews chapter 10, one more passage here. He says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. (coughs) He says the sacrifices were yearly. They don't perfect you. They don't work that way. For then, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But yet they sin, and so they need to be offered over and over again. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sins. The work that is done there is a covering of sins, a temporary covering of sins. It takes the perfect blood of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, to take away our sins forever. As we conclude, I'm drawn to Matthew chapter 27, when Jesus is there at the cross. About the ninth hour, Jesus, dying on the cross, cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama slabachthani, which is Hebrew, from, Matthew, from Psalm 22, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, they didn't understand Hebrew, when they heard that, they said the man is calling for Elijah. They hear Eli, Eli, and they think, oh, he's calling for Elijah. He's hallucinating or something. They don't understand what he's saying. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, look at this, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Remember this, that the priest could only enter once a year into the holy place and with blood. And Jesus, his blood being spilt there on the cross, tore, God himself, I believe, tore that veil from top to bottom opening wide the place, the holy of holy places, so now we can boldly enter the throne of grace. This is the picture of the day of atonement. Year after year, people would go before and watch this happen, and year after year, they would watch the lambs being offered and sent away. Year after year, they would see their priests change clothes and bathe and then come out and offer. Year after year, they would watch him disappear into the holiest of holy places, wondering if he would come out alive. Year after year, he would come out alive, and they would say, good, our our sins are covered once again. But Jesus, having completely fulfilled this, does away with any need 
for us to do any animal sacrifices ever again, because He is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect King. Hebrews chapter 10, one more verse. I don't have it on my screen here, but if you look at your Bible, Hebrews 10, 19 says this, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. God is so good. He's given us a perfect priest and a final sacrifice in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, today we are thankful for what you have done in giving us this final sacrifice. As we read the Old Testament this year, let us point towards you, see where you have given us the description of a final offering. And Lord, we're thankful that you have given us this salvation through Jesus Christ freely to anyone who will come and anyone who will believe. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.